This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And I have to tell you that I'm wildly in love with I Will Greet the Sun Again. And I know you guys have heard me say this on the show before, but Justin Torres, We the Animals, also a fan. This book may remind you a little bit of We the Animals. Mega Majumdar, also a fan. Javier Zamora, the author of Salido, also a fan. Caleb Azuma Nelson, also a fan. So I'm not alone in my love for Kashiar Kabushani's debut novel, I Will Greet the Sun Again. And I got to tell you, dude, for a guy from the 818, you have written the quintessential LA novel. And there are going to be some people who are just like, what are you talking about? But I'm going to ask you to introduce the book and we'll go from there. Thank you, Miwa. I, the way I've been describing this book is it's a very, for me, it's a very quiet book. It, it, it deals with, with big themes of, of home, of, of diaspora, of trauma. But to your point, it takes place in the valley, uh, which is in Los Angeles, and in particular, it takes place in Canoga Park, which is one of the many neighborhoods in the San Fernando Valley. And the way I've been thinking about this book, because it also speaks to my experiences growing up in the valley, which is that there is everything that happens, and yet there is nothing for the narrator, seemingly nothing that is happening. Long days, scorching sun dry heat. Uh, I think that's even a line from from the book. We do, we're do we doing nothing at all, and yet everything is happening uh, in our lives. So for readers, if they're interested in that, I would say, please do read if you're interested in having everything that happens and nothing at all. <laughs> but it's really important because these are kids who are living life in translation as well. Life is not easy for their parents. And I'm not, ju- not just Kay's. Kay is one mm-hmm. of three brothers, mm-hmm. Sean mm-hmm. and Justin and Kay. We're going to get to Kay in a second. But, you know, their parents are really trying to make the American dream work. And then there's Johnny, whose parents have a complicated story. And then there's Christian. All of these kids have parents with complicated lives. And one of the things I love about what Javier said about your novel is that it's for all of the kids who grew up in apartments who had to make Mm -hmm. their own breakfast and lunch and dinner. So you're writing about class. Mm. You're writing about privilege. You're writing about basketball too, which <laughs> you can't be from from LA, me yeah. about basketball. You said it. You said it. You yeah. said it. We have to talk about basketball. But here are all of these boys coming of age in very different ways in the 1990s. And I got to ask why you chose the 90s because you, my friend, were not around for much of the 90s. <laughs> You were a toddler for much of the night. I, I, I will say, and 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 maybe there is like some neurologist or whatever psychiatrist that will right. dispute. But my first memory, very vivid, is when I was two, which was the the Northridge earthquake, which was devastating. Wow. So that would have been okay. ninety four. And I think, in a way, I think that's what I was like. I do remember, and so right. if you know, I'm like, well, let me set that in that time where yeah, you yeah. know, and kind of bump up Kay's age where he would be sort of quote unquote coming of age uh, in the right. early 90s and you know and, and just a more like boring note I think I was I was alive um, for the transition of pre not just social media but like obviously you know the iPhone when it was yeah. it, well, that would have been 2007 2008, it really changed everything and mm-hmm. I wanted to set a story pre all of that when you mm-hmm. had to like call your buddy be like 
the bus is going to drop me off at 315 at the KFC, you know, and, and yeah, there's yeah. something like really, to me, romantic about that. Didn't feel very romantic at the time, but now looking back, it feels very romantic. There was much more serendipity to it. There was much more yes. chance of getting lost. Yes. And finding yes. something that you weren't planning on finding. And sometimes that included you, right? Like, I love these brothers. I love Sean. I love Justin. I love Kay. And I am delighted that they are not my brothers because I think I would not have survived like 50. They are boys, man. If you're happy you're not their, they're your brothers, be happy they're not your sons. Like when I look at my mom and she's <laughs> like, damn, woman, you did it. Put yourself through school. Like, yep. oh my God. Yep. But I love these guys. And they are, I mean, Sean is the basketball player who's a little too short to play <laughs> college ball. But he ends up like making space for himself. Justin has an arc that is wholly his. And we may touch on it a little bit, but I feel like his journey ends in a little bit of a spoiler. So mm. I, I, we're going to dance around that a little bit. But Justin, he's kind of who I expected him to be for a middle child. Maybe I'm reading too much <laughs> into that, but it kind of makes sense. And then Kay, who's our guide, he's our guide through this whole thing, you know, this kid. and. Part of what I'm wondering is when the book started for you, because you are a very physical writer. And mm -hmm. by that, I mean, there's a scene where the boys are taken to the beach by their parents and mm -hmm. like just the immediacy of it and little boys playing at the beach and being free of the valley and all of this other stuff. I mean, people obviously, many people think immediately of the beach when they think of Los Angeles. And that's not a lot of people's experience. Thank you for right. saying that, because I think even for me, there's like when, when when we hear Los Angeles, to your point, we think we think Malibu, we think ocean. And then, yeah. and then of course, we think Hollywood. Part of the valley that I grew up in that it was you might as well have been taking uh, a family trip to a different state, a different city when you were able to go to the beach is a very novel experience, um, both for me and, and of course, for for the characters. Uh, so I, I appreciate you pointing to that because I, I think to this very day, I'm still trying to understand like anytime I'm back in Los Angeles, what my relationship with that place is and what it means to me, uh, what I have access to, what I don't have access to. I think too, it's really hard for people who aren't from LA certainly to understand sort of the scope of the valley, right? Like it's much more than the Galleria. Okay, like straight up. It's not just that mall from that moon unit Zappa song. <laughs> One of the largest Chinese American populations actually, Monterey Park, man, like that mm, is like mm. the biggest suburban Chinatown there is. And it's really well established. And there's a whole Armenian community. And there's mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much in the valley. And yet, Oftentimes, I think of sort of this washed out 70s image, right, where everything's dry and brown and, you know, swimming pools are empty and kids are skating in them. Like, that's yeah. what I think of when I think of the Valley. And it's so much more complex in so many ways. So when I saw that you had set your novel there, I was like, OK, I'll follow you. I will. Mm. Because, I mean, there is a very large Iranian-American population sort of more towards Beverly Hills and Beverly adjacent, you know, all of that Beverly yeah. Hills adjacency. <laughs> well, and you're, you're bringing up a good point because there are all these identities and, and sub identities um, in Los Angeles, but also for Kay and this family. And, and, and you highlight yet another one, which is, I remember when I would tell 
others and, and maybe even adults like, yeah, I'm, I'm Iranian. I live in the Valley. They're like, oh, great. You have a, you have a robust community. What you're pointing to, especially on the West side in Beverly, it's the Iranian Jewish community. Uh, we're Muslim and, and I always longed to be a part of it. And, um, but you know, for political and class reasons, it just wasn't quite an option. And it was always a kind of a, a heartbreak for me. The Iranian Muslim community is, is present in Los Angeles, but much smaller in comparison to the Iranian Jewish community. Part of what you're doing too, though, you bounce into Iran actually in the nineties. Can't believe they let me do that, Miwa. I was like, I, I was so excited to put a boy in oh, Iran. Dude, it's so good. I mean, honestly, some terrible things happen and I'm not making light of that, but like the fact that you have a full quarter of this book. And when I realized what Kay's dad was doing by taking the boy, I was just like, wait, wait, how? But it's pre 9 11. Flying was a totally different thing. He's dad. He's got their passports. You bring up such a good point, and that that goes back to your question too of like why I said it in that era. Because I remember yeah. kind of telling this. You know, you you go through therapy, you do therapy through you right. know, up to your eyeballs, blah blah blah. And I remember my therapist mentioning like, there's no way a father like today. I guess the mother has to be pre- at least on the American side. Mother has to be present. Back then, it was just like nope. This is what there's I'm doing. Paperwork. There's paperwork now, whereas before, I mean, I remember my parents taking us to the airport in Boston so we could watch planes take off and land. We were easily entertained children. We weren't allowed to watch television. So, I mean, is it any wonder that I ended up a bookseller? But I still, and I, you know, I'm one of those people who still lives to fly, even though flying is not, it's just not what it used to be. But I actually, I quite enjoy being on the plane and I have no problems entertaining myself. So if the Wi-Fi goes down on the plane, I'm okay. Like, I'm good. But this idea, too, of this sort of freedom that these kids have, because even though their parents are doing the best they can, let's say, parents are doing the best they can, these boys have an incredible amount of freedom. And Mm -hmm. I think kids today don't have that freedom of movement the way you or I would have, you know, in an earlier age, as it were. And I think that's really important to stress because these boys are figuring out how to be boys. Like they really kind of don't get their mom. They love her, but they don't get her. They don't, they super don't get her. I don't think she gets fully in this instance because, you know, here's somebody that has left her country, is married to someone much older than her, is living in a in a foreign land. And I think in some ways, at least in this part, like I don't think she fully gets what's happening. There's a lot of, you know, this isn't language that, Kay uses in the book, but I think as sort of somebody reading it, it's like, oh, there's a lot of dissociation happening, you know, and rightfully so. She's got as much, you know, on her plate as as the boys do. So, yeah, I think all of them are trying to sort of, there's just like a lot of experimentation. And I don't, I don't mean to use that word lightly. I mean that like in a very profound sense of let's find ourselves, whatever that may look like or whatever that may mean. And each of the brothers really do. And that, like, they each have an arc. And I appreciate Mm. that because no one sort of gets, you know, especially when you've got three characters who are so different, who are so full of life, who have very different journeys in the same family, right? Like, we should never assume that siblings have the same experience of a family. Mm. Well, you bring up such a good point. I know many people can relate to this who have siblings. Like, it's so astounding to me, you know, 
three boys, three girls, or mixture mm-hmm. of siblings, whatever, grow up in the same household, and then 20 years later, they all recount what happened in that house very differently, yeah. even though they were, in, you know, went through the same things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and to me, you know, sometimes it's, it, when I look back at this story and I look at Kate, I, I wonder, I was like, it's this kind of, I know it's really bizarre, I feel this like reverse shame for giving the brothers and maybe even other characters like their own arc. Because I know like technically like in a first person coming of age novel, like it's about that narrator, that that protagonist is doing. But I just couldn't, I just love them so much, these characters, I couldn't help but like be equally invested in them as I am in in K. Yeah, and I'm going to poke at you. Shame is a really interesting word choice. And I'm going to poke at you for a second because why not just write the thing you wanted to read, right? Like, that is a very fundamental piece of advice mm. that writers who are just starting out get from a lot of different... I mean, famously, Toni Morrison, right? I wrote the novel I wanted to read. Like, this is just such an L.A. book <laughs> in so many ways. Like, the, the sort of slightly feral children, <laughs> the relentless heat... <laughs> God, I think it was Henry Hoke who just said this the other day on the show, um, that he felt like he didn't have a center when he moved to L.A. And L.A. is one of those mm. places where you need to have a center. And, like, clearly the Valley is your center. Like, K-Town is my center. And, mm. But I mm. live in a very specific piece of K-Town that abuts a lot of different other communities. And I just, that to me is L.A., right? Like, the cacophony of the language and you know what i see in my bonds and you know all of that stuff and how you need that the landscape center. changes right yeah like yeah i know there's the there's the that adage like if 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 you can make it in new york you can make it anywhere i think if you can make it in la you can make it anywhere because yeah. to henry hoax point like if you're not really diligent about I've started to use the can phrase but like establishing community yeah, i yeah. might you're absolutely screwed Whereas in New York, there's like so because it's so compact and you don't need a car, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot more opportunity to even if you're not even engaging with people in a very substantial way. For me, at least in my time there, just seeing people being around bodies constantly. There's a lot of work that that does for you, especially if that's something that's really important to you. So I want to talk about craft for a second, because this is your first novel. It is very assured. And you also give Justin, the old, the middle brother, Justin, a line that he says to Kay, his little brother. It's a little bit further on in the book. And he says, you have to fall in love with the thing that's been right in front of you. And I sort of feel like that's your relationship with writing, that this has always been there. But you took a minute. You were teaching before you went and got your MFA. And then it was Heidi Julevitz, who was one of your professors at Columbia, who was like, well, actually, you can use fiction to tell the Mm. truth. You don't have to write nonfiction to be able to tell the truth. And I want to take all of those points and start talking about how you became a novelist, because clearly there's a lot that went into this book. I mean, you're wrestling with lots of big ideas and big themes and characters that some of whom we're going to love and some we would like to punch in the throat. But I want to talk about you as the creator of this world and these characters and how we got here, because I mean, you're not the first person to have taken a little bit of a detour before an MFA program. Yeah, when when you invoke uh, Heidi Julevitz's name, it gets me. I get so emotional about about that because, you know, there, I, and I and I had I had many uh, professors in, in the in the MFA that were were, were so instrumental and, and generous. 
but that that and it, and it was also very serendipitous that I took a class with with Heidi Julitz because yeah she teaches in fiction and I was a nonfiction student um, but it just so happened there was availability and and I applied and, and got accepted to her workshop and and getting to see it, you know there's what she said about the ability that what fiction can do. And, and something else that she told me that always stuck with me throughout this writing process was allow Kay to go, allow your narrator to go where he wants to go. And your job as a writer is to, is to stay out of the way of that. Because I had my idea of, because this novel is so autobiographical and so many of the things I experienced, I had an idea of how I wanted the story to unravel. But one of the most meaningful things about writing this book is I had the chance to um, recreate uh, the past uh, and sort of envision what life for me could have been like had some very significant things gone differently. And that's where, I guess, from the from the craft level, like that's what brought me to to fiction, to the novel. And to your point about the detours is like, I was somebody that was getting kicked out of class as a young person. Um, I was even in middle school asked to not return at a certain point because I kept getting into trouble. And there was no world where I would become a writer, at least the way I felt it. And yet, to your point, I was always, even if I wasn't writing, I was always narrating what was happening. And I don't know if that's a coping mechanism for a young person or Maybe that's something that a lot of people who go through trauma can relate to. But once I realized that there's been this voice all along um, that's been soothing and helping me, I wanted to see if it was possible to bring that to the page. Yeah. And what you just told me is you were telling yourself stories. I was telling myself stories. That's what that that is. Whatever, Whatever device you want to call that, right? Like, that's you telling stories. That's what stories do. Okay, it's a novel about LA where you know who I'm about to invoke. Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories to live. Like, there is a reason that line has been tattooed on the back of so many brains, right? Not all Angelinas, but at the same time, like, yeah, you do what you need to. And stories, the thing that helps you through, like, I cannot begin to imagine how difficult it was to be Muslim in America after 9-11. Like it was chaotic. I mean, I remember hearing the stories and I was certainly, you know, I was an adult. So I remember so much more than I might've otherwise had I still been in school and whatnot, but it was gruesome to see. It was gruesome to hear. And, and people were so cavalier about it. Well, and, and now that I look at it back as like an adult and have all the language that we now are afforded and, and I don't want to, I certainly do not want to dismiss the gravity of that, but to kind of speak to the novel and to speak to, because I was a, I was such a young person when 9-11 happened to me, to this day, what I still am grappling with and can't get over is it was actually amongst loved ones. And so Andres and Danny and Marcus and Lisette, like these were all, we were so tight. and then. I think it was Wednesday, post 9-11, I go from being best friend to being Osama. Like like that. So it came from the young people too. Oh, which yeah, I, no. 
which we pick it up at home, of course, right? But I think we're supposed to be better than everybody else was like my idea, but clearly not. It was a wild, wild moment in American history. And the kind of thing too, like I actually will never forget the smell. That's that's the thing that I still like, not often, but like when it pops, you're just like, oh, right. Like when mm. the wildfire smoke was coming down from Canada, it was like, oh yeah. Um, it's really kind of trippy to have that sense of place. And I mean, yeah, you grow up in the Valley, but you do capture a lot of the culture. And not mm. just about, I know I keep coming back to the basketball stuff, but you've got parents with an arranged marriage. You've got parents who have struggled in the United States. You've got parents who can't translate themselves for mm. their children. You've got a kid, Kay, who takes away his own name. He's mm. like, yeah, just call me Kay. I don't, I, mm. my dad named me after a Persian king and no one can say my name. And I'm just going to take my own name away. But you think about like how violent that is for a person uh-huh. to like, yeah. for a young person to how disorienting to never have, even before they have a tra- chance to introduce themselves or be introduced to the world as who they are. I mean, it's so Names are so primal and and important and can be complicated, of course, but to be severed. And I think that's just one aspect that Kay is contending with. But of course, like you take the elevator up, it starts with his father, who's like also severed himself from so many parts of of his past and his identity. And so nobody really stands a chance in this kind of mixture. And, And one thing that I feel kind of really encouraged by is hearing people talk about how it's a very hopeful book because mm-hmm. as I was writing it and as I as I think about it like and I guess that goes again to your point about fiction is I don't feel very hopeful about, about these things and I'm still contending with them the sort of aftermath in my in my personal yeah. life yeah. but to kind of re-envision something mm-hmm. and to make it more hopeful I think for me was like I guess my life depended on on that. Like I needed to have that aspect. I would have followed you wherever the book was going to go. Like straight mm. up. I was just going to, like, I was in it. You delivered a really hopeful ending in a lot of mm. ways. And, you know, I know I've hinted at Justin's arc and um, I'm hoping he's okay. But that said, it's still, for him, it's hopeful. Sean gets a really hopeful arc. And Kay does his thing. It is kind of an open-ended bit, and I'm wondering if you're going to come back to Kay. I sort of feel like you're not done with him. Do you, what do you think, Mila? Do you think I should? I would obviously read more. <laughs> I do feel like there's space, and I feel like there's space for all of the brothers, because Sean gives you a chance to hit, you know, a whole different L.A. Mm. Justin gives you a whole different America, possibly. And you know who we haven't talked about is Khaled, is the, is the aunt, who's yeah. like plays a big yeah. role in the boy's life yeah. and the back to their mother. I'm also like, she won't let me go because there's a lot about her life that she tells Kay, but it's not explicitly told about her life. And I'm just like, where did you find your courage? Like, especially as a woman in Iran, like post, you know, revolution, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in the best way a writer hopes for. I'm sort of still haunted to, you know, to answer your question is like, I'm still yeah. haunted by these arcs and these characters and these voices. I just, I think there's so much more here. 
yes, I do want to hear more about the boys, Auntie, but I'm really attached to the boys. And I'm really attached to them figuring out, I mean, I suppose there's some familiar elements to an immigrant story here, right? Like, there are some details that are shared no matter what. But these boys are so alive on the page. Mm -hmm. And they're so vibrant. And they're so themselves. And I mean, Mm -hmm. they also beat each other up like little boys do. But (laughs) there's something for their path of mm. each of them. And so I'm I'm just, I'm voting for maybe more about them. But I want to talk about literary influences for a second, because here you are, you've had some great teachers without a doubt. Clearly, you've been reading around as much as you could. And that's part of being an MFA student, but it's also just part of being a person, right? Like mm-hmm. part of mm-hmm. how you learn to write is by reading a lot. So let's talk about literary influences. Let's talk about some of the writers who also helped make you who you are? I mean, it was it was. Um, I, I I joke that I'm a closeted poet. I will I will never even have. I don't think in this lifetime, but the the the, the gumption or the guts to sit and say I'm going to compose, you know, a line of verse. I, I don't understand how we are so fortunate to have poets in our lives. Or I was I was just listening. So I have Christina Sharp's. Uh, Ordinary oh, I Notes. love that book. Ordinary Notes is insanely great. That book is so special. So the concision, but it like, you know, I, I know it's not, you know, a book of of poems, but this ability to sit and you, in, as economically as possible, mm-hmm. pack a lifetime of, of feelings and thoughts yep. within yep. a few lines. Um, and that to me, uh, so so Christina Sharp, and I'm, I'm looking at my yeah, book yeah. stack here, and, and it, it for I, I often turn to poets like Kave Akbar, mm-hmm. uh, love W.S. Merwin. I recently read uh, Huasu's Stay True, which I also loved. And it's hard to sort of say this person or that person is a literary influence because I'm such a hungry, I'm such a whore for like for language. I just need it. Not because it brings me pleasure, because like literally I can't I I don't stand a chance. I didn't stand a chance as a as a young writer to do this thing. Had it I had people show me like this is the way it's done. And so I'm like constantly borrowing from them, learning from them, and I'm always opening up a new book and, and seeing where 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 it'll take me. I think being able to pull any work apart at the sentence level is impossibly important. And I think I get really picky about language. (laughs) I get really Mm. picky. Like, honestly, I'm okay if nothing happens as long as the language is there. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't actually need stuff to happen. Like, I really just, if the language isn't there, and I know other people who are like, well, if stuff doesn't happen, why am I reading? I'm like, well, <laughs> there is a book for everyone. There yes. genuinely is a book for everyone. I'm just telling you where I come from and sort of my, like, I need to be pulled in to a writer's POV. And that starts with language for me. And that language and voice are inseparable. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are mm-hmm. some people who would like to sort of take a exacto knife to that. And I don't think you can. I think mm. every choice a writer makes is ultimately about voice about point of view so you're okay like if the language is doing what you need and want language to do 
you're okay with the absence of of plot. Yes, I am, but I'm rare. <laughs> I am rare in that. Yeah. And there are times where I will pick up something and put it down and pick it up and put it down. I just, more than most, I will stick with it. What I always need, though, is voice. Yeah, so I guess I am saying no, I'm okay. I'm really okay. As long as the language is there, I'm really okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. And, and you're right. Sometimes that means like, yeah, if it's not like a, you know, plot driven book here and you're not like, oh, I, I have to, I have to know what happens next. Well, it's like, what I love is you can read a few pages, satiate yourself and then, and then come back to it. And it's, it's more so like the slow burn, which is like my favorite reading as well. So dialogue also for me, like the way your characters talk is really important. I feel like I have a Isn't dialogue so embarrassing. It's no, so hard. I, yes, it's hard and it should be hard. But the thing is that you just got to read a lot of playwrights. That's really what it comes down. Just read a lot of playwrights and then suddenly it all makes sense. And, you know, I, that's <laughs> noted, the only way noted. to explain di- That's the only way to explain dialogue. It's just like, I don't I, just read a lot of playwrights because it's all dialogue. <laughs> it's all dialogue. <laughs> that's so good i paid a million dollars for my mfa and i never got that advice Uh, now i got it from you sorry i think i actually i may have stolen that from someone who did get an mfa but then went to law school afterwards long story i was just like okay (laughs) i'm just gonna go be a bookseller thanks very much you keep you keep doing the school i'm just a bookseller and talk about cool stuff with interesting people but the idea that you were that kid who was bouncing in his chair and did not like school and did not mm. want to be there. I mean, I think that says so much more about the environment than it does about the kid. Mm. And I think it's really easy to lose sight of that. And you taught for a while, right? Like what mm-hmm. ages were you teaching before you went? I, to- taught, I taught middle school um, and, and I taught oh. in Pacoima. And I, I, I was just talking to a friend who I, who, whom I taught with and, and still uh, works as an educator. And, and, and I was telling, I was like, I feel like I was one of the students. Yeah, I did my best to teach and show up and was a very good teacher. She's like, oh, you definitely, you're like, you definitely were like that. The things that those kids were going through and what you've been like, she's like, I didn't see much of a difference. Um, And so for me, that was really meaningful. And I want to say this, Mia, because it's, it's so important in regards to, to teaching. And it's something that I've shared and that I continue will, which is like my most important writing instructors uh were my students in Pacoima and, and, and specifically the reason that is is um at the end of the year they they uh had this close this, this assignment where um in order to also work on writing and and sort of practice gratitude there was this sort of cool merging where um at the end of the year, they were asked to write gratitude letters for the teachers and the leader of the, the, the director of the school, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, I was, uh, you know, we talked about reading and I was, I was turning to writers who have been sort of critically acclaimed and et cetera, et cetera, but use very sophisticated syntax and, and diction and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm reading these gratitude letters from my students who, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, but because of environment and circumstances, a lot of them, their reading level and writing levels at the second grade or, or third grade level. But what I'll tell you is, as I was sitting there reading these gratitude letters, because they had the willingness to write in their own voice, 
and to use the language that they have, I could see and hear each of them so clearly as I was reading these letters. I thought, that's what I want to be able to do, to your point. To me, the most important thing when you read, whether it's a letter, whether it's a novel or poem, is to like be able to see that voice fly off the page. And it was because of my students where I thought, I'm going to really lean into that. And so in the novel, I think that's, I know it's told, you know, through a young person POV, but that's why I tried to keep the diction really stripped down um, and for to allow that voice to really come through. Yeah, I think that's hugely important, especially too for parents who don't necessarily like our kids are not speaking Farsi, right? Like the boys mm -hmm. are not speaking Farsi and obviously their parents have learned English, but there's always that slip. I mean, I grew up in a home with a bilingual parent and also a parent who was very monolingual. <laughs> 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 and you know i've got cousins who are trilingual i've got you know and i mean baby cousins who are like trilingual and it's great <laughs> to see right it's so exciting and you just kind of got to keep up with the tiny people right but i think there's something about growing up in translation right mm. like no matter what you know about your environment and how you move in that environment or how you interact with people outside of your house like there's this fundamental act of living in translation. And I do believe it's an action, right? Like living in translation, mm. like you've got one foot in one place, one foot in another. And it changes the way you see language. It changes the way you see the evolution of language. It changes the way you see access to language. Yeah, I know how to diagram a sentence, but do I need to do it on a regular basis? I do not. I'm good. Thanks. Do I know someone with a really cool tattoo of a diagram sentence on his per Yes, I do. That's not me. <laughs> I'm good. Thanks. I'm glad I learned how to do it. But, you know, I do think grammar is something that can be sort of used as a cudgel. Mm -hmm. We're not teaching kids to interact with words and language in a way that resonates with them. Then what are we doing? You know, we're not walking around sounding like pilgrims, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. we shouldn't be at mm -hmm. least. And I think it's kind of great to know that your novel is grounded in 12 and 13 year olds who are like, well, let me explain to you what my world looks like, because I think you're full of it. And I, you know, when you look at like the explosion of YA literature, what's happening in middle, re middle grade readers and all of that kind of stuff. It's like, well, if you're going to build a new generation of readers, you can't all give them Thoreau and Wadsworth and be like, oh, here's Thanatopsis. Go to town, tiny person. <laughs> that's that's the thing. Yeah. And, and, and I'm I'm really this is like, you know, a very kind of idealistic dream of mine. But when I imagine you know, my students from Pacoma or, or, or students across Los Angeles, it, right. you know, if they come across this book, what I didn't want to happen is to have a novel that deals with themes and experiences that they are dealing with on an everyday basis, but it's locked in a syntax that is unavailable to them. Yeah. Now, if they want to grow up and study and, and as you said, diagram sentences and read and read. Amazing. I love that shit too. However, in the meantime, as like a vehicle to get there, I wanted them to be like, yeah, you, you can hear yourself in this and that in, and, and perhaps, I mean, that's what, as we talked about, we the animals, like the rhythm of those yeah. sentences. <laughs> oh, those boys. 
Mm, I was like, oh, you're allowed, you can do that? Mm -hmm. It's like, that was a vehicle for me. Like that was, that book was like a Bible for me during, during when I was living in New York. And so in a way I wanted, even if kiddos don't go on to become writers, I think to be able to see themselves, it's like what you, 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 you point out to Javier's quote. Yeah. To be able to see themselves reflected, I think is so important. It so matters. I mean, Caleb Azuma Nelson has said this too about Zadie Smith's NW is like, that's the book that said, oh, I, now he grew up in a different part of London, but he was just like, oh no, I can do this. And I love the idea that some kid is going to pick up your novel and just be like, oh, I recognize this. I open my door. They're in the same apartment complex. They're like, they're probably still hanging on the staircase right it's, there. <laughs> I mean, all of that basketball at one point too. I mean, it felt like you were sort of referencing Kwame Alexander's middle grade books. There's there's a moment where one of the brothers passes another book and I'm like, oh, could be. Or maybe it's just <laughs> totally made up, but whatever. But the idea that the boys are connecting, not just physically, right? Not just through basketball, not just through riding their bikes, not just through, you know, their parental situation because they're trying to figure out their parents as well. But the idea that they're sort of passing books. I mean, at one point, Siddhartha makes an appearance. <laughs> I killed me. Does everyone, I mean, seriously, it's like Siddhartha, the basketball diaries. Like there's always something where you're like, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's a rite of passage. No, seriously, there are certain books, right? There are certain books when you read them when you're like 18 years old and it's like, that's the best thing you've ever read in your life. You go back later and you're like, oh, apparently I knew nothing when I was 18. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) And you just kind of, your eyes get really big. (laughs) Oh. That was a poor choice, but hey, now I know better. And I mean, I love the idea that our reading tastes and our habits and all of this can evolve, right? Like, yeah. Who's who's speaking to us and how? And well, it's so like with that example, I think to me, it's you know you can fill in the blank with any title. I think particularly what you mentioned about Siddhartha and and, and with Justin, I think the fact that there is a book that he turns to yeah. that sort of. And again, I don't want to give too much away about his character, but that just, I'll say, like, diverts his attention to something a little less harmful and and something to kind of hone him in. I think as Kay, seeing that there's an admiration where he's like, Mm -hmm. you found something like I need to find something now. Yeah. Yeah. And I that is, again, I, I know I said this earlier in the show, but there is a book for everyone. Right. Mm. Like it may not be the same thing, but everyone should just go read Christina Sharp's Ordinary Notes. But that's an aside. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's just everyone should just go. Everyone should read that. But and everyone should read I Will Greet the Sun again. But at the same time, like I genuinely believe that if you can just keep an open mind and keep an open heart, there there will be a book that you'll connect with. And it might not be the one that you're expecting. And that's part of what I love. I mean, I came to Los Angeles much like you grew up there. I did not. And it is a huge piece of my world and has been for, you know, a couple of decades at this point, more than a couple uh, of decades. Wow. But like my life in LA, I recognize parts of it in this novel. And, you know, I have nothing to do with these children. Nothing mm. to do. You know, it's just, but it's, there's this sense of LA that just pervades Mm. this book in a way have you ever come across the la river miwa uh yes i have 
I've even ta- I've even taken the subway to do it. So wow, I, wow. Yeah, I, take, I I do take the subway when I'm <laughs> I'm like I'm apparently the only person who does, but I really like it and it's very useful. <laughs> the red line, so. yeah, 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 yeah. I am I I am a, yes, absolutely. But you know, now there's a stop in um, Little Tokyo, which people are trying to call the Arts oh. District. I'm like, yeah, it's Little Tokyo, but that's okay. <laughs> like, are we really doing? Oh, we are really doing this. Okay, yeah. gentrification has come for like the last oh, little bits. Especially that corner me because it's like right? high rise, new high rise, new high rise, new high rise, six thousand dollars apartment. You know, uh, yeah. I was at dinner on San Mateo Street the other day, and I was just like, "Wait a minute, what is that building? That was not there." Mm-hmm. You know, there's a shell of a new high rise with you know all of this, and I'm like, "That was not there three months ago." I don't really understand how quickly that building went up, and I'm like, "Don't we have earthquake stuff that we okay? Apparently, okay. I I don't build buildings; I just sell books." So. But I mentioned I mentioned because in you know in 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 the boys you know it's called it's called the wash and I I just remember being so confused as to why it was called a river and it's like yeah you know it's far from from what a a river in let's say the east coast or other parts of the of the of the country look like and that was just like another I guess. In a way, I've, I've spent a, a lot of times at the, uh, at, the, at the wash or near the LA yeah, River, and yeah. it was kind of a homage to what that strange structure uh, meant to me growing up. But again, the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. Like the landscape, landscape yep. is so much a part of this book, and you do it. You the way you write about the valley, the way you write about LA, the way you write about these boys, it's all very economical. You are not wasting words. So this brings me back to the language thing. So you've talked about how autobiographical this is. You've worked on it. You you did sort of need a little bit of outside push, right, to say, I can do this as a novel and not as nonfiction. So when do you know it's time to let it go? Like you had, to, at one point, you had to hand it over to your agent, and then you had to hand it over to your editor. And now you're handing it over to readers. You want to hear something crazy? Well, and I and I and I can't believe I'm going to say this, but but you, this is the most kind of honest answer. I, my with this book, my problem was actually sitting with it longer. You know, where where, where yeah, my agent that. or or my editor I, would be yeah, like, it. it's not. You know, we need this. It's not. I'm like, but did you? But like, he and Johnny, they they did it. They did the thing. Like we're we're ready to fly, and they're like, no, there's like there's this thing. So okay. I'm sure I'll you know, my experience with, with further books will be different where I will do that thing where I just keep working on it, keep working. And and Lord knows I, there was a lot of revision that went into this book, but the child in me was just like, we're Mm -hmm. done. We we could be done. Like we wrote about, (laughs) we wrote about something that other people that I haven't read before. So isn't it great? Like, doesn't it need to be published next week? You know, they're like, no, honey. Yeah. My God. (laughs) Rewriting. I, I, I can't, say this enough but rewriting is a big part of the process <laughs> you get you gotta take out the stuff that mm, and yeah you gotta add in the and there was a lot of mm, with, with my editor <laughs> like she, let's just say she saved me from myself in a lot of instances you have a very good editor i will say that i'm i'm very fond of her taste <laughs> she's got really good taste do you miss this family do you miss Kay? there will be these times where i'm like here washing dishes or whatever and, and the people that i miss are because what you said earlier about like not just the brothers but like the johnny's the k's the yeah, the, yeah. The, the the christians 
the people that they encounter on the basketball court, you know, in the, in the neighborhood, I miss what it meant to be a child and not quite have the language to understand uh, how fraught things were. I mean, of course they were going through these things, but it was just so propulsive and every day. And there was for me, such a sense of community. And I, I miss that gathering um, of being able to come together and, even if you're not talking about it specifically, um, there's, you, you mentioned, you know, there's, yeah, there's a great deal of basketball and there's one scene in particular with Kay and Sean, his eldest brother, where it turns quite violent. And for me, um, obviously I don't hope that for any siblings or anybody, but I think there was a kind of grace and the opportunity that basketball afforded for physicality for even like, yeah, just this primal reaction, which allowed them actually to have some semblance of a relationship. To me, that was a conversation. I mean, yeah, yes. it reads like, okay, here's the thing. It reads like a fight. Absolutely. It reads like a fight. It reads like two brothers knocking each other around. But for them in that moment, it's a conversation. It's the only way they have to connect. I am not excusing violence. I am not saying that this is, you know, we should always use our words. Yes, absolutely. But in this particular case, in this novel, in this world with these brothers, that was it. That's all they had. That was the only way they were going to connect. And later, yes, they find their words. They turn into mm-hmm. adult men together. <laughs> like this is <laughs> this is a moment with little boys being little boys. And yet, I mean, they're adolescents at this point, but I'm sorry, adolescents are not, they're little boys. A lot of adult men are still little boys. Yeah, so. Well, and that's... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you don't let the toxic masculinity slide in this book. You do not. You're just like, and you, and you, and you, and you. Which, I will say, you know, as a chick, it was very nice to see <laughs> the men calling out the I'm men. Impl- like, we can't them always We're be the ones going, out. oh, this again. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes it helps when the men are like, oh, this again. <laughs> and, you know, you hope that the boys will figure it out. And I think they might. I mean, I'm assuming that as much as you and I have joked about whether or not you come back to these characters in another book, that you've started the next thing, right? Like you're thinking about what the next thing might be, yeah? Pretty deep into it, Mila. Yeah. Okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Haven't shown it to anybody. And I'm like, uh, you know, as far as like Asia Enter, and I'm I'm so curious, like if they'll just be like, "Mm, no, thank you. Uh, We'll we'll see. But I'm, I'm, you know, talk about, I'm like, uh, I'm working really hard on this. On this oh, that game. I don't doubt. I mean, uh, that's okay. That's <laughs> you're like, I'm you just like, you're doing the work. I'm just waiting to read. <laughs> I just have to read. Like, really, I just have to wait. I can do the patience thing when it comes to writers. But other than that, I'm kind of like, hi, patience. What is that? I'm not good at standing on. I'm really not good at standing. But what on. you give us with this show, I've told, I've told you just before we start recording, like, uh, like a Tessa Mush fit, uh, uh, all of them. I just sit there and I'm like, cool i get a free education you know (laughs) free but like you know what i mean it's just so thank so thank you and and you work exceptionally hard as well and we're so lucky i really mean that we're so lucky to have you in this program well that's insanely nice of you to say but thank you because yeah it does take a lot of time but it's worth it it's totally worth it i mean the most important piece for me though is that like this is an la novel you know there's so many people who have ideas about what it means to be from Los Angeles, you know, and who we are and all this other stuff. And it's just like, well, actually. Well, thank you so much for like driving <laughs> that because it's like, it's equal to like what you're saying where we're talking about like coming through 
customs and getting all kinds of yeah. stares and looks and questions <laughs> and, then, and then us being like yo we're 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 american like yeah. get over it, blah 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 <laughs> and i need to sort of embrace what you're saying which is like like i think hearing you say is the first time i have sort of recognized in myself and acknowledged that this is an la novel but it for me because it's i think different from the Los Angeles media that I take in, but right. but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a space under that umbrella. So I just really appreciate you like really driving that home yeah, because it is. I love Los Angeles and to right? be able to have people write about it. <laughs> it's yeah. Kashiara Kabushani, dude, let's do this again. I cannot wait for the next book. I cannot wait for the world to experience your LA novel. It makes me so happy that this book is going to be out in the world. So, I will greet the sun again. And yes, I had to look at the title because I do not want to mess up this title. And I have a horrible tendency of shortening titles. Anyone knows this. So anyway, dude, it was so good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Appreciate you very, very much, Bewa. I'm Bewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Port Over. And I have been waiting to talk to Jamel Brinkley about his new story collection, Witness. You remember A Lucky Man? It was a finalist for the National Book Award. It also won the Ernest Gaines Prize, which if you follow that prize, you know our friend Mr. Brinkley here is in very good company. And we're very excited about this. But, you know, Jamel, I wanted to talk to you because you've done two story collections back to back. And you and I have both been in and around books for a really long time. And there's this constant, constant sort of nagging that, oh no, story collections are hard, short stories are dead. This is your art form. This is your thing. You're not writing, and maybe you do have a novel planned at some point, but these are spectacular story collections. So why? Why stories? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Miwa. Thank you for having me on, first of all. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. Why stories? I mean, first of all, I guess I should just say that I totally share your frustration about the way that short stories are talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, like sometimes I'll make the grave error of going over to Goodreads. <laughs> Dude. And I know, not not to my own stuff, but just to see what people are saying. I, I almost never look at my own Goodreads. Really. But even there, you know, you'll have readers say things, and it frustrates me to no end, you'll have readers say things along the lines of, I don't really like short story collections and this book is a short story collection. So I didn't like it. I mean, that's basically the gist. Yeah, no. uh, Yeah. It's crazy. So for whatever reason, either, you know, because of reader response, either because of publishing and sales and all that stuff, um, either because the novel, you know, just has more cachet and sort of seems as the, the, the real form. Short stories, yeah, they, they don't get valued as much as they should. And and they're incredible. It's just, a, it's just a simple form. It's its own form. It has its own integrity. It's not the thing you do before you write a novel. It's not a preparation for something else that's real. They are real. And I write them because technically they're, they're so challenging. They're incredibly difficult. Novels are difficult too, of course, but but short stories are difficult. You know, you have to, the amount of work that you have to do in such a limited space to write a good short story 
You know, I think if people really thought about that, then maybe they would respect the form more. And so I love that challenge. I love the challenge of getting a glimpse and the suggestion of an entire life or an entire group of lives in the space of 6,000 words. Part of it is, too, you're covering so much interiority and you're covering time. And I think it's really easy for folks to not think about how time plays out on the page, right? Like if you're watching something on a screen, whether it's big screen, little screen, whatever, you're watching something on a screen, time moves in its own sort of fashion. But like you can cover, if you need to, you can cover mere minutes in a short story or you could do a decade. You could do more. It's just how you control the words on the page. And you like to go a little, technically you go a little long for stories, right? Like you do go a little long, which is kind of the fun of it. Yeah. And it does. I went back and I reread a bunch of lucky man when I was prepping for this. And I have to tell you, like haunting is a fair description. I think for both titles and for both sets of stories and Okay, we are going to get, you know the story I'm talking about. Yes. <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are going back to that family in Westchester. But haunting to me is kind of consistently more about what you've done in both books. And when I look back at how we were talking about a lucky man, masculinity was sort of the first thing. And I'm like, well, actually, yes, it is a big part of it. And it is exciting. And we are going to get to that. But you're playing with time, you're playing with isolation, right? Mm -hmm. Like you could argue it's loneliness and you might argue it's loneliness, but Mm -hmm. you put your characters into these very tight spaces and then you make them move. Yeah. Except it's not necessarily physical movement, right? Like you make them move and you really push them. And I'm wondering where you I mean, are we starting at the sentence level? Are we starting with language? Are we starting with character? Are we starting with place? Like, it doesn't feel like you're starting with, hey, I'm going to explore masculinity in the story. I'm sorry. I I don't mean to laugh about it, but you understand why I'm kind of making fun of all of those pronouncements of this is what this is about. And I'm like, well, actually, I just really want to hang out with these characters. And they're leaving me a little bereft sometimes. Like, Simone, man, I don't, I'm not going to shake Simone. For a really long time. And she's one of the, she's an early story in uh, Witness. She's stuck somewhere here in the back of my brain for a really long time. But where does it start? Uh, For me, a story can start, the the seed of a story can be a lot of things. Um, It can be an image. It can be a place, voice. It's never an idea. It's never a concept. It's something very small and specific and tangible. And if it's not already a place, then I quickly start to think about place. You talked about the characters being in these small spaces, and I often think about stories in terms of containers. What's the container for the movement of a story? Okay. You know, because once you have the container, then it actually is is liberating. You know, the straight is what frees the story to move. So, yeah, you could have a character physically not move from a space or mm-hmm. move, um, have very limited movement, but the story can range because you have a starting place. You have a foundation. You have something that's stable and sturdy where a story can go. 
So I would say place. If it's not immediately place, then I go to place. I look for place. What's what's going to continue this story? Is place a character? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, I say that having grown up in New England, which, you know, has all of the baggage that comes with it. But it's like, you know, you know, you know when you're in the woods of New England, right? Like uh, it's uh, And you grew up in the South Bronx and you grew up in Brooklyn. And I just really want to be clear that you're not writing autofiction. Yeah. And I think there are times where, especially with a collection like this, or both of these collections where, you know, folks want to bring their own experience, but they also expect that they are getting more from an author, more of the authors. You're, you're in a way breaking your own privacy, I think is what I'm trying to say that you're, you're putting even more on the page. And I find that kind of fascinating. It's like people get really attached to the idea of the author and their background and what's happening on the page. And I just, would you take a second and talk about the Brooklyn and the South Bronx that you grew up in? Because you haven't been back for a minute, but yeah, like, I just, I want to set that stage because I do think that landscape is pretty important. Yeah. So, so for me, the, my, my Brooklyn and the Bronx kind of spans from the eighties to the early two thousands. Okay. I left New York, well, a little later than the early 2000s. I left New York in, in 2013. That's where my memories are, from my earliest memories to my most, form- most formative experiences. Right. That's, that's the New York that's closest to my heart. Yeah. That's the New York that I'm kind of comparing New York to every time I return and visit and yeah. see the strange towers that have popped up everywhere, you know? <laughs> so that, that's my New York. Yep. And part of why I asked, though, like New York in the 80s, right, versus New York in the 90s, such a radical change from 80s New York to 90s New York. And then you jump like the the early aughts. I don't quite know how to describe them. But now, you know, the difference between 1990 and, you know, 2010. It's like a lifetime. And it's not just the buildings. It's, you know, it's we've lost bodegas. <laughs> we've got yeah. banks on every corner. Now the banks are moving out and the drugstores are like, yeah, we're a little over this. I mean, it's, we have a lot of empty storefronts. It's, but it mm. hasn't gone back to what it was, right? Like, I mean, it was a very different place, even through the nineties, right? I, like, I get kind of excited thinking about that old, like we're all sort of attached to our, have you ever read the Colossus of New York? Yes. That Okay. So, you know, the Colson Whitehead book about New York, we get attached to our pieces of New York, but those pieces of New York have also formed your characters. Totally. Yeah. Like when I think of that story, Clifton's, wait, do I have the top? Yeah. Clifton's place. Yeah. From Lucky Man. Like that to me is about a time and a place and people. And I really kind of want to dissect that story with you because not a lot of people talk about it. And it seems like everyone's got their favorites. And I'm like, that story breaks my heart when I think about it. I mean, I love Sadie. I love Ellis. I know. But I'd like you to set it up, if you would, please. And then we can sort of work backwards from there. Yeah. So so Clifton's Place was sort of inspired by, there were a few bars in Brooklyn, which is Brooklyn places, you know. And it just sort of felt like they would always be there. Like You, you can't have Brooklyn without these places. So I'm thinking of like Frank's, for instance, near Fort Greene. Yes, I remember Frank's. <laughs> with a tip-top bar. 
the tip top. That one I didn't know. Yeah, that yeah. one I didn't know. But. So this bar, Clifton's actually physically resembles the tip top bar. Okay. Else. And what was sort of gorgeous about these places is that you would just get like the locals, like the, the mm, regular yeah. people who would just frequent that, you know, just these gathering places for for people who felt like they have sort of Brooklyn is etched onto their skin, mm-hmm. you know? And so the story starts off with kind of like, it's almost like a, a very slow pan of the camera. Yeah. For this place kind of like really getting a look at it, you know, and then we kind of focus in on Ellis, our main character. Um, then the story proper begins, but Clifton's, the name of Clifton's was given by the person who runs it, uh, Sadie named after an old lover. And basically what happens in the story is there's a, uh, there's an enactment of gentrification happening. <laughs> New people are frequenting the place, engaging with it in ways that people have never engaged with the space, you know, and Ellis, who is, you know, one of, one of those solitary figures you were alluding to earlier, a lonely kind of guy. He's there. And, Sadie, who's sort of, I won't say she's losing her mind. <laughs> I had a friend mm-hmm. who loses their mind. But, you know, she's an older woman, but Ellis sort of takes on the, the role of this, of this former lover, you know, to, as an act of kindness, but also as a way to address his own loneliness. So it's, it's a sort of complicated move where he sort of agrees to step into this guy Clifton's shoes. That story for me, and yeah, it is it is the last story in Lucky Man, but that story for me set the stage for Witness and what you're doing and the loneliness that runs through Witness. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about the title for a second because I think it's really important. I mean, Lucky Man, there is that titular story. And sometimes I don't know how I feel about Lincoln. <laughs> That's weird. That's how you should feel. Sometimes should feel I don't know how I feel about Lincoln. I do yeah. think his wife has a leg to stand on. Oh, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. <laughs> but with, I, I really, Clifton's Place does sort of set up this new collection. And can we talk about the title for a second before, because obviously there's also a titular story witness, but I just want to talk about the the title for the collection itself and this, what we're witnessing, because I don't think it's as simple. Yeah, it's not simple. I think, um, I think, I hope it's working on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'll just say that. Yeah. Yes. The, the seed of the idea of, of using witness, you know, James Baldwin, one of my favorite mm-hmm. is always talking about witnessing. It's one of his yep. key words, you know. And one of the epigraphs for the book is taken from um, I Am Not Your Negro, in which yeah. Baldwin says, you know, the line between a witness and an actor is thin, but, you know, but there is a line, right? He's basically saying that it's, it's a thin line, but the line exists. And I love that idea. Um, elsewhere in an essay called This Nettle Danger, at the very beginning of this essay, he's talking about how rare it is to find a, a writer who is a true witness to his experience. Mm-hmm. Because being a true witness to your experience means you're sort of shed of all your illusions and you can't live on the surface of things anymore. You have to sink into the depths. And so in this book, I think I'm exploring a collection of related questions. One is what's the difference between 
being a witness to what you want to see and being a witness to what you need to see. Mm-hmm. Being pushed out of yeah. your own um, limited perception into seeing what you really need to see as a person. And then secondary to that is once you see what you need to see, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Are you going to act? Are you mm-hmm. going to act responsibly? Right. And the third level, I think, and, you know, some of the other epigraphs kind of move in this direction. It's not just what you perceive in a way that's external to yourself and what you do out in the world. Mm-hmm. It's also perceiving yourself. It's also being a witness to your own self, to your own actions. And so I think the collection is kind of looking at that cluster of questions and exploring them. Comfort is the story I was referring to when I was talking about Simone. The isolation, it's not the first story in the collection, but it is early in the collection. And her isolation and what she is unable to witness in her own life is really painful. It's really painful and it's really uncomfortable and it's hard. And I need to know where this story came from because it is slightly a sibling to Clifton's place. Mm. right in terms of what the characters are experiencing in terms of loss and broken community i think i because i don't really you know what i'm trying to dance around obviously um but this broken community and this idea that we can't we get to a point where we can't necessarily participate in our own lives and i sort of want to walk through the creation of that story because i really like i'm not going to shake this woman for a while like i'm really not yeah I, I absolutely see that connection to Clifton's place that you're talking about. That feels real to me. Another story that I was thinking about is a story by William Trevor. Yeah. Titled A Day. In that story, the container is again, it's largely a domestic story, yep. not exclusively, but it covers a day. You know, mm-hmm. it's hours of any experience of a woman and she the thing that's haunting her you find out pretty early on in the story so this isn't a spoiler but the thing that's haunting her is um, infidelity i love that 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 something seems like it shouldn't work it seems like the story should not work i know? feel that way about a lot of william trevor's stories though because i'm like how does this dude do this because seriously it these tiny tiny domestic yeah. setups right and like i'm not necessarily interested in other people's domestic squabbling but at the same time i totally am because that's where the truth of the thing is right like you're hiding a really big political statement in a tiny domestic moment like a dish breaks yeah or my husband's a cad or you know you're just out of prison and you're trying to figure out how to connect with someone who's not sure she wants to connect with you and yet you know i mean yeah no i get the trevor thing i really get the trevor thing but at the same time i'm like how did that how do these stories work? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. And so with, with comfort, I was thinking about how, how do you, I wanted to focus in on the aftermath of a terrible occurrence. I wanted to write about that kind of terrible occurrence, but not censor that occurrence. I wanted yeah. to censor the people. I wanted yeah. to censor a, a specific person, this woman, who is dealing with what has happened. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned before, I needed that container and I felt like yeah. I could use this container of, of the day. 
And so I really wanted to um, press myself very close to her experience. Mm-hmm. Almost her minute-by-minute experience to it. Yeah. In a way. And explore the way that that time against her will almost kind of dilates and mm-hmm. causes her more pain. But also the ways that she tries to cope, you know, the ways mm-hmm. that she tries to live her life, the ways that she still tries to experience pleasure or joy in her life, um, which may not always be the healthiest ways. And so I, I really wanted to, to write a story that looked very closely at this kind of pain and grief. Um, and it was difficult to write, actually. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it, was, it took a long, it was slow. It was very slow writing. I, I felt like I could endure it bit by bit. Then I had mm-hmm. to step away from it to yeah. try to see it clearly. But that's that's where it came from. I mean, part of the thing about short stories, too, is, right, you're capturing that hinge moment where before tips into after. Yeah. Except what you're doing with time, when you said dilation, I was like, yeah, that actually is the perfect word. Because, yeah, you've compressed her day, but it doesn't mean you're not playing with time in this story. Right. Because when I when you drop a line in there and the first time I saw it, it was an amount of time be- between what happens and where we are. And I was like, it really, my eyes got really big. And actually, my eyes will continue to get really big when I think about it because it's a nifty trick. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not performance. Like, it just, it makes perfect sense in the context of what's going on and yet at the same time it's a serious wow moment and there are probably people listening going what are you talking about but you just have to read the story and that's you know that before and after right you do that in ways that there are a couple of times where I was like huh he's gonna zig and use it which I love and it's harder to do in a story because you don't have any padding right like you actually have to do some stuff in three sentences because you just don't have the room. Yeah. But the new collection witness, do you have a favorite story? Do I have a favorite? I have yeah. favorite stories for different reasons. There are things okay. that, there are things that please me about a few different stories. Okay. So being able to to sort of capture the feeling of of grief without the story becoming stagnant is something that I like about comfort, for instance. Yeah. Other stories I like because of the way that I'm peeling away at the narrator okay. and exposing the narrator over the course of the story. Or the way that a narrator who is really reticent will kind of blossom mm-hmm. certain moments of a story. There are things, those are things that I love, too. I don't know. There are a few of them I, I really have a lot of affection for. When we meet the woman who uh, is in the let out, there's a woman talking to a young man at a museum. The way that story unfurls, I was hoping she was going to turn out to be who she was. And you did not disappoint. I was like, oh, please, this would be such an excellent setup. Please tell, please, as I'm watching this kid puzzle it out. Yeah. But for you as a writer, when you're puzzling this stuff out, right, you're not sitting down and saying, this is where the story goes. No. My understanding is that you sit and you noodle and you riff and then finally a couple of drafts in, a couple, three, four, yeah. I don't know how many drafts, you finally get the thing, right? Yeah, that's right. There, there are a lot of wrong terms, which are functional wrong terms. Yeah. They're the kinds of wrong terms. Yeah. That it's part of the 
experimentation process. Mm-hmm. So you trace your step and go back. You know, right. you find the story again, you keep going and you find the right way. I like that mm-hmm. feeling of discovering it. You know, the reason, one reason I like that story is because it mm-hmm. captures a certain feeling that I had. Nothing like that ever happened to me, speaking of the, but, you know, so that story is based on uh, First Saturdays at the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> and there was a feeling that I had there when I would go where any kind of encounter could happen. Mm-hmm. What did happen is that I would see people I hadn't seen in years. You would just sort of bump into someone like an old friend. You know, we haven't seen you in two years or something. Mm-hmm. It would just be this rediscovery of someone in your life. And I was like, yeah, that's the kind of place that this is. And again, thinking of place and what places can do, it, it, it's like, you know, a, a call goes out and people, like, people show up by the hundreds and thousands. Anything could happen. And that's sort of the, the pleasure of a place like that for a story. Because any, any kind of encounter can occur. Do you surprise yourself? Yes. While you're working? Okay. Yeah, I do. Okay. Like one of my great pleasures in writing short stories is the surprise of an ending. Mm-hmm. I love when you can see an ending, like shortly before it happens, shortly mm-hmm. before you set it on the page. That's my favorite feeling. Mm-hmm. You're like, this is where this story is going to land, needs to land, must land. Mm-hmm. I did not know that five minutes ago. I certainly didn't know it when I started this draft. Now I know it. And that's, that surprise is the absolute best feeling because it feels like all the forces, all those wrong turns, um, that careful kind of tracking of the story, like, you know, it's like a bloodhound just after it, you know, has, has come to fruition and you found this, this ending. And it just, it's just a wonderful feeling. There is sort of an intimacy and a longing to a lot of your characters. And it's not just, the isolation, right? Where do you come on the side of isolation versus loneliness? Like, I sort of feel like they're very separate entities. There are other people who would argue, well, they're two sides of the same coin. I mean, where do you come down on that? I think they're on a spectrum. Okay. okay. And I think that the character, I think my characters can sort of end up anywhere on that spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes within the space of the same story, they might be in one place and then sort of tilt the other direction. I think it's perfectly possible to be in solitude and not be lonely. Right. I mean, because that's part of it. And I also think that sometimes characters who are isolated or characters who are lonely don't necessarily know that they're isolated because they keep throwing themselves into like piles of people. And it's like, well, actually, you're just not connecting. It's true. Right. And that that's I sort of I, I understand what you're saying when you say they're on a spectrum, but that's partially why it feels so separate to me and that we conflate it just kind of as an easy shorthand and the way you chip away at your sentences like i'm guessing there's a lot of rewriting there's a lot of rewriting that goes in to what you do right that the writing is part of the rewriting is part of the process oh absolutely yeah i write slow messy first drafts okay weird they're messy but they're not fast (laughs) yeah yeah no i got it i got it they're sort of all over the place. They're a little loose, um, especially for short stories. Um, you know, some of my favorite short story writers write some of those longer, more digressive, discursive stories. Like you mean Ed- Alice Monroe? <laughs> you mean Edward P. Jones? 
those are my faves. So, I mean, some of the masters, but Monroe, again, like talk about taking tiny, tiny details. And I'm like, I will follow you anywhere. Yeah. I will absolutely follow you anywhere. And in a novel, I might not be willing. There are times where I look at things and say, you could have been shorter. I can see the Trevor. I can see the Monroe. I can certainly see the Jones. And you've also talked about Yi and Lee mm-hmm. and her influence on her work. And I just, I think she's a rock star. <laughs> I just think she does amazing, amazing stuff. So in terms of influences though, I mean, yeah, we're talking about story writers, but who are some of the other writers that you see? Flip- I mean, obviously you've talked about Baldwin as well. I mean, those feel like the biggies, but they can't be the only influences. I mean, you you do have an MFA from Iowa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of my other influences, I, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's directly on the page, but in terms of the way that I think about writing, Marilyn mm-hmm. Ruffles is a big influence. She was one of my teachers at Iowa. Charles D'Ambrosio is a big influence mm-hmm. in the way that I think about writing. Gina Barrio is a writer that I love. I think an underread short story writer, like mm-hmm. really kind of a brilliant short story writer. So I think she's pretty important to my work as well. When you say they change the way you think about writing, what's an example? I had a class with Ian Lee before I started as a student at Iowa. The thing that was great about that is that she sort of prepared you to challenge any orthodoxy about writing. Yeah. You know, the idea that you can't switch point of views. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Point of view violation is, you know, a problem automatically if you change right. you or the idea that the idea of show don't tell, for instance, you know, is something that she goes at too. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a really great preparation going in because any, you know, to the extent that an MFA program might train you in certain ways to write, I think I came in ready to be like, you know, the possibilities of writing are endless. You know, you yeah. don't have to do that way. And I sort of feel like Marilyn Robinson was the same way. You know, mm-hmm. the workshop was pretty unique in the sense that I remember one week, actually, she sort of forbade us to use certain craft terms. Because she said- Marilyn Robinson. Okay. Yeah. They don't use those words. I think someone said suspense or something along those lines. And she piped up out of nowhere and said, don't use that word. Like it was a curse word or something. You know? okay. okay. And we all kind of looked at her because she usually waited to speak until, you know, the end of someone's workshop. And we kind of looked. And then she gave us this whole list of words that she thought were absolutely useless in terms of writing. And for her, it's about the quality of attention. The quality of attention is what matters. Mm-hmm. The quality of your attention. Where your stories fail, it's because that quality of attention has eroded. You know, where your story fails, it's because you don't have respect for your characters. All your characters, she insisted. Mm-hmm. Not just your main character. You know, she told us to be on the side of all the characters in your work. You know, that that's the immense challenge of writing. That's something that pops for all of your stories. Mm. Even the toddlers, even like the little boys in the swimming pool story, yeah. the, the camp story in Lucky Man, but like some of Lincoln's colleagues, like people that wouldn't necessarily, and certainly like Clifton's place, like the background players, you flip it. Yeah. And I love that. And yeah. the way that you bring people to the fore 
who might not otherwise get their stories told, right? Like Blessed Deliverance, mm. right? The kids in that story. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, that's a way to talk about gentrification. Yes. Yeah. And here's the thing, like you are talking about carceral systems and gentrification and theft, yep. like deed theft and all of this, all of these big things, yeah. but you never lose sight of the people. Yeah. And then you throw a ghost story in the middle of it. Yeah, You're playing with the genre. That I was not expecting. I was just like, okay. Yeah. Okay. So we got to talk about the ghost story for a second yeah, because, I mean, essentially it is a family story. Yeah. And at first I was kind of like, oh, we're going here. Yeah. But you're playing with genre and you're giving this framework that I would think of when I think of you, right, on the page is a family story and the family's going to go awry and they think they're holding on. And yet, but even the toddler has a presence. The ghost has a presence, like all of it. Yeah. So how did we get there with that story? Like why the ghost story? And yes, I realize why not could be a perfectly acceptable answer, but I'm asking more about that story because it is a surprise it's a surprise yeah. like sorry you and ghost stories what <laughs> i know i know you know what's funny is that so that that's actually the oldest story in the collection the first draft of that story was written 10 years ago and wasn't working oh, and so it was aside. Okay. all right <laughs> it, was, it was just out of sight out of mind for for years okay and i was as i was working on this collection and i started to sort of see what the collection could be I thought, you know what? Let me take a look at that old story that wasn't quite yeah. working. I revised it, yeah. and it's there. Uh-huh. Why a ghost story? There are a few things that have been kind of really on my mind for a while uh-huh. now. I'm fascinated by ghosts, and I'm fascinated by hauntings. When I was a graduate student at Columbia before going to Iowa, I remember reading this academic book that I thought, first of all, was beautifully written, but also fascinating. It's called Ghostly Matters. Okay. Gordon. And in that book, she talks about ghosts as seething presences. Hmm. That we're not talking about an absence exactly, but a charged space, a charged yeah, yeah. gap, and a kind of condensation of time. Mm-hmm. I kind of love that as a way of describing what a ghost is or what a haunting mm-hmm. is. You know, and she talks about slavery. She talks about the disappeared in South America, like different ways of talking about this. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then, you know, like Sadia Hartman's work, she talks about the afterlife of slavery, right? Um, so I'm just thinking like, yeah, you know, these, these figures kind of fit exactly or fit well the way that I think about time. Mm-hmm. You know, that... We don't have a discrete past, present, future, right? That right. you're always sort of entangled with time, you're sort of walking through these gossamer webs of time all the, all the time. Yeah, you do some stuff in that story with grief and forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard, right? Like everyone seems to talk a big game about forgiveness, right? Like just forgive and you'll feel better. And it's like, well, it's not that simple. Like That's forgiveness a- is a complicated thing. And your characters know it yeah. without being able to speak about it. Yes. And that's like a high wire act. Like how in the world are you doing? And I suppose it's just a matter of you let your characters be your characters, but it's really impressive to see all of the silence on the page. 
and all of the things that go unsaid, forgiveness or connection or what have you. And can we talk about the spaces and the emptiness and the stuff that you have to take out to let your characters do their thing? Because it's not just the ghost story. I mean, this you see this in the titular story. You see this in Witness. You see this in um, what's the happiest house? Yeah, Union Street. You leave a lot out. You leave a lot to the imagination in that story. And then when you fill in the gaps, yeah, I think it's part of the art, right? Especially with short Mm -hmm. stories, it's about figuring out what to leave in, and and also, you know, for for the for the production of story itself, it's often about removing things, about taking things away, because sometimes those things are protective of the characters or the act as buffers between the characters mm-hmm. right they're the things that the things you can leave in can sometimes keep the story civil and well behaved and not <laughs> much happens right but when you start plucking things out right and then you sort of condense that space that you were talking about earlier yep. that's when things get cooking right so you have to have a sort of a good eye for what those things might be mm-hmm. what those protective buffering forces might be and how the story might improve if you move that. Right. What, what gaps did you... So, I mean, for instance, Happiest House on Union Street, like, we don't get a lot of detail of what's gone down between the brothers. We just know yeah. that there is discord, and there has been discord, and there will continue to be discord, and they're just, they're never going to track in the way that their mother would have liked, right? Or that their da- or that the daughter slash niece thinks. And I like having the details taken out, right? Like, I don't need to know this happened at this date and this time. Like, I need to know that there's friction and I need you to let me puzzle out how I get to, like, witness went in a couple of different directions where I was like, I was not expecting that. Uh-huh. And I love that story. I really, and I love Bernice. Yeah. And talk about the stuff that does not get said between yeah. characters even even when bernice's mom shows up and is being bernice's mom but like i really love the stuff that gets left out it's um, yeah you do it in a family too in lucky man it yep. really happens a lot yeah a lot i mean talk about an aftermath story right and it's just like okay. yes yeah okay but same thing like and it's not just the men who don't say things like can i just be clear about this like it's everyone right Bartow station too yeah right like it's not just it's not just our dude who's not talking it's super not just him and yes he has the bigger story but he's met with a lot of silence and a lot of difference right yes yes it's true yeah i think part of that is sort of seeing like there's something about the structure of the family Mm -hmm. that's often built on secrets and silences yeah right you know and when people the members of a family get together Mm -hmm. those secrets and silences become so powerful they become seething like those seething (laughs) silences that we were talking about you know and i've always been fascinated by that you know like you get a sense like there's some some history is in this room with us right now no one's saying what it is and i can barely detect it but it is leaving its mark. It is radiating something, and I feel it. And so part of what I think I'm trying to do in these stories is to capture that, like that other character. Sometimes you can call it a ghost and give it a name, right? But sometimes it's, it's not as easy as that. It's something a little more elusive 
Um, and so how do you capture that? Because I think it's so fundamental to, to groupings, you know, to have these sort of seething, strange, unsaid tensions, histories, secrets. You mean like bystander? Yes. I mean, you put your family in a tiny apartment. Mm. You've got a teenage girl who is really not in great shape. You've got mom who has been telling herself stories. Mm. And dad's kind of hanging out in the corner, just letting things unfold when actually both his daughter and his wife need him to be a little more participatory. And he's really not in a place... Yeah. emotionally or intellectually where he's just like oh. yeah and i mean talk about the silences yeah and the things that each of the characters wants the others to infer yeah from those silences it takes a lot to represent that in a sentence like yeah. again if you're watching it on a screen you can physically right. make the silence happen right and you don't quite have the luxury of that shorthand. Yeah. Oh, it's so true about that family. That 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 dad is so content to play his assigned role. Oh. Like, I'm just gonna be this. <laughs> I'm just gonna be useless dad. Yeah. <laughs> and, he's, he's... Gotta say something every now and then that only touches the surface of what's mm-hmm. going on in his family. When do you know collections done though? When do you know that you have the pieces? Because I mean. The flow in both of these collections, right? We've all encountered story collections where you're like, oh, I see where you were going, but could we move this? I I realize the books are printed and they're out in the world, but could we move this story? Could this just flip, you know, three stories down? Like, I like collections to have an arc as well. And and I think that's really important. And sometimes you get a collection where you're like, huh, okay, that's a choice. But when do you, as the artist, say, okay, I have to hand it over to my editor now i have to start doing a different kind of yeah my, my guess is that it, it just differs from book to book the process was entirely different in these two books so electing man was sort of carved out of a larger body of stories probably had 14 or 15 stories we whittled it down to nine nine that really spoke to each other the nine that seemed like they had some sort of arc then, but th- once you do that, then you're getting into questions of sequencing, order, mm-hmm. how, prepare, how one story prepares you for the next story, where a collection begins and ends. For instance, I love that the first story in that collection begins with sort of a youthful experience of music. And we have sort of this mournful or complicated, more mature music that's going on at the very end of the collection. So those are the kinds of um, talking across that I like. Um, with this one, I was building up to the collection. So there are no secret stories out there hidden. And I also had a sense of it as a collection sooner than I did with a lucky one. But the same thing, though, once, once we have the stories, it's, it's a matter of, well, what sets the tone? How do you want to open the, the collection? What's the first sound that you want a reader to hear when, when, they, when they read um, Blessed Deliverance? Yeah. How does that? That story prepare you for what's going on in the book. How does with the ghost story? My, I think I don't know if you would agree, but I, mm-hmm. I think that the I think I think the prior the story prior to that, which is comfort, is is a slight preparation for the appearance of the ghost story. Mm-hmm. And and you know, so thinking about things like that, you know, yeah. how, how the 
end of one story rubs against the beginning of another story. Mm-hmm. These preparations, these um, thinking of it as notes, thinking of these like smaller arcs within the larger arc of the yeah. book. I'm just also thinking about how Bartow Station sits with Witness. Like that's that is a really powerful pairing. And I remember thinking, okay, I I took a little break after comfort. And by little break, okay. like, you know, just needed to walk around my kitchen yeah. for a second. And then I took another break after that particular Sunday. And I'm really glad I read Bartow and Witness in quick order. You know, and it, like it all comes back to haunting and not just the ghost story. It's like yeah. these characters, they each have a very specific story. They each have a very clear point of view, mm-hmm. right? And obviously you and I are dancing around story points like crazy people because it's just no fun to ruin a story for someone else, especially when you do stuff with language and character that you can't necessarily do in the, with a novel. Like it really is a very different yes. art form. It is. It's an entirely different form. It is. Yeah. So does this mean you stay with stories? Is this... You know, where we are, because I'm not complaining, yeah. but I'm curious, like, how do you push yourself when you know you have a form you love and it works? How do you push yourself? How do you make the next thing mm. that stops your heart cold? Right. Which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing when you're reading. <laughs> yeah. I think I'll always be writing stories, even if I do I, a novel or something. I think mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that I moved on from the story form. Right. I continue my engagement with it. Part of the fun of, of story collections, we were just sort of talking about this, is that it's not just about getting the individual story right. For me, you know, a collection is, is also not just a gathering of, here are all the stories I wrote in the last four years or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So part of the art and part of the challenge and part of what keeps it interesting is that you have this body of work. You, know, you have your eight, nine, ten stories. Mm-hmm. And you have to see if they fit. And you have to see how they fit. Mm-hmm. And you get to play with the order and see what story they're telling, what that arc of that story, yeah. that gathering of stories is. And that's always interesting. I think there are always these little challenges you can give yourself in writing story collections that sort of renew the, the excitement of the form. Yeah. For you. Yeah. You know, like one thing with this book that I'll, that I'll mention really quickly is that, like I said, this is a collection that it's about a lot of characters who maybe don't want to see things. And in some cases, maybe don't want to do anything either. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a huge storytelling challenge to write about characters who don't want to see and don't want to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because you have to write stories that are vivid and sharp. And how do you do that if your characters are willfully closing things off, right? And you also have to have stories that are dynamic, right? And how do you do that if your characters, in many cases, want to remain still? Mm-hmm. And so for me, a lot of what is interesting and challenging and fun about this collection is to take something that, you know, maybe you're not, you know, in a, in a writing class, they, they might tell you you're not supposed to, you can't have passive characters, something like that. Right. It, Okay, I see why you say that, but actually I can think of lots of stories that have passive characters that are great, and I'm going to write a whole collection full of them. How about that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, that's a fun challenge for me, to take right. something that seems like such a rule that you cannot violate, 
and absolutely violate it and find ways to make stories that are interesting about characters who are because of circumstances or because of their own will just kind of stuck you know so break the thing and rebuild it make a new thing (laughs) yeah you know that seems like a really good place to end so i'm gonna say thank you jamel brinkley i knew we were gonna run out of time and we have run out of time Witness is out now. If you haven't read Lucky Man, it's out in paperback and you should check that up too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.